Social isolation is great for home, but how do we continue to get medical care as patients and to provide medical care as physicians without getting infected with coronavirus? Hello, I'm Dr. Simon Madorsky, Medical Director of Skin Cancer and Reconstructive Surgery Center, SCAR Center, and Appearance Center of Newport Beach. Medicine has changed dramatically over the last six weeks. In our fourth episode of our series of Coronavirus, Science and Contagion, we explore some of these issues, such as telehealth and changing standards of procedures and surgical medicine. In our fourth episode, it's a very special episode, we have our first conversation with Dr. Mark Jewell, my associate at SCARS Center. Dr. Jewell is a dermatologist who practices skin cancer, general dermatology, and cosmetic procedures that are minimally invasive. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Jewell. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. We're excited to have you. And uh, we wanted to start this conversation by asking you how your practice has changed over these last dramatic six weeks and how your practice of dermatology has changed specifically. Well, dermatology is a great field in that a lot of it is visual. So we get the luxury in this social distancing world to be able to do a lot of telehealth visits, which is, has been around for a while, but is now being you know, widely implemented. Uh, we've been doing many different forms of it, FaceTime, which many of you may know, but also Doxy, and there are other, other platforms that you can do these visits on. It's really been a dramatic change. Part of it, we've been lucky in that the change was driven by some of the rules and guidelines of CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and state agencies which have mandated either PPOs to cover telehealth or Medicare itself has decided to finally pay for telehealth. And believe it or not, as physicians, we do uh, need to get reimbursed in order to spend our time half a day on uh, telehealth conferences. Yeah, and it's been a great tool for me, you know, and, and you know, not everything can be done with telehealth, but it can create shorter in-office visits, protecting the patient and protecting staff. Yes, that's been real. The convenience of it has been really quite dramatic for our patients. Um, but we've had some problems, obviously, with, with telehealth. And that's been, sometimes it's been humorous, sometimes it's been a real challenge. What are some of the issues that you've encountered with telehealth? I think the biggest issue we've encountered are the image quality. So I think we've been trying to stave that off by having patients send photos ahead of time and then doing the in-person video. So if the photos are inadequate or the video is inadequate, you know, we can kind of use one or the other. Is there any platform that you've preferred or what have you used? What kind of platforms have you used with your patients, the technology platforms? We've used the FaceTime, which which was a great way to start. Actually, when this when coronavirus started, the HIPAA requ requirements were relaxed. So that allowed us to use these non-encrypted kind of more standardized imaging platforms. But, you know, going forward, we want to protect our patients' privacy. And I think to do that, we need to use one of these HIPAA compliant platforms like Doxy, um, as well as Zoom. And, and they've both been great. Uh, but again, the image quality has been kind of the challenge. Yeah, we're still struggling trying to figure out which telehealth platform to use. There have been so many and there is still changing in the process. And of course, image quality is an issue. But I know that dermatologists have figured out a way to actually 
there's a there's a word you call for it how to improve image quality yeah so the standardized word is store and forward or and that is basically where you take a picture on your phone and email it in and then uh, the physician can look at it ahead of time and then discuss that while you're on the video call as well and it's nice you get your patient interaction as well as seeing a very crisp image and if it's not adequate you just ask your patient to send more images I completely agree. That's been a great way of looking at patients. And in fact, sometimes I don't even have to look at patients. They can send me several photos and we can have a discussion on the phone if they're having difficulty with telehealth yep. platforms. And that's least. been a, a great tool, especially for our elderly patients that have a more difficult time with, with technology. You know, I've also seen some of these devices that these telehealth companies, where you can plug into your computer and take a picture of a specific skin lesions. Have you had an opportunity to use any of those? No, I haven't. I'm excited to see how that is. I've I've also seen um, devices that can measure your blood pressure. There are some uh, stethoscopes you can put on your chest oh, wow. and you can breathe and the doctor will hear exactly your breath sounds or your heartbeat. And of course, uh, we know that there are now pulse oximeters that you can plug in. Like I know Apple has something like that that can measure your pulse. So that's all coming. We haven't had a chance to use it, but I'm excited to actually try some of these skin lesion cameras, mm -hmm. uh, which will probably be better than an iPhone image. Yeah, a traditional tool of the dermatologist is what's called a dermatoscope, which, which is basically a magnifying glass that you put on individual lesions, and it can show you minute structures that you can't see with the naked eye. And if there's a camera at home that could do that for us, it would make our job you know, that much easier. I love it. Dermoscopy at home. Right. You can practice your own dermatology. Well, that's very exciting. Now, the fun part about the whole telehealth has been the ability to see some of our patients from outlying areas without having them drive here. We see a lot of patients from areas as far as hour and a half away um, who make it all the way to the SCAR Center. But the one of the ways it's changed is we can see the patients, see their lesions, and then we can actually schedule a procedure. And they just drive in for a quick procedure and they're out of here with very limited time that's wasted. Absolutely. You know, and, and in a lot of rural areas, the access to specialists, you know, we are a tertiary referral center and, and the access to, you know, more specialized physicians isn't available. And this can give you know, an opportunity for patients to have that access. That's right. Bakersfield, do you hear us? <laughs> We're there for you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the um, some of the fun things I know I have done is I've seen a patient uh, referred to me by another dermatologist with significant skin cancer, with biopsies, and I was able to see these elderly patients on video conference and talk to them. And I think they're their son or daughter helped them with technology. Oh, it's always useful. That's great. And and we're able to schedule surgery. The patient came into the surgery center in and out with minimal contact with everything else. So we provided minimal amount of exposure to any sort of risk to the patient while treating the, this extensive cancer. And additionally, the post-operative visits that you would normally do in office to evaluate the wounds can often be done via telehealth now, negating additional visits. Absolutely, I even tried that. So I asked the wife to take out the staples, but she used the wrong staple remover. It was very painful for the patient. Oh no. No, okay. I'm kidding. <laughs> now we actually, for, for certain things, we do ask patients to come in for Absolutely. removal like surgical staples. No, but not want you to be doing that at home. All right. Now, um, 
we have some patients that are very experienced in skin cancer, right? They pretty much know when they grow a new skin cancer. Mm -hmm. So what if one of our patients calls you and says, look, doc, I know it looks like another basal cell on my temple. Can you just schedule me for most, come in and get it done without having a biopsy? How would that work? Well, traditionally, you know, a dermatologist would biopsy a lesion ahead of time prior to scheduling the Mohs procedure. But but you can do something that's called frozen section, which is you take a small piece of the visible tumor the day of your planned Mohs surgery, process that quickly, and then look at it under the microscope and make the diagnosis prior to beginning the traditional Mohs surgery removal. That seems uh, much more convenient and efficient. Now, you wouldn't recommend it for all the patients that suspect a lesion uh, obviously. No, because, you know, often, well, not often, but sometimes that your biopsies and your, your, what you suspect is not what it turns out to be. And then often, you know, it can be a wasted visit as well. Right. Well, most surgery obviously is a major production and a big setup of a lot of resources. So Absolutely. we really like to know that we're definitely going to do most surgery on a patient. But for those special patients who have the badge of experience with skin cancer, the unfortunate badge of experience of skin mm -hmm. cancer, and, yep. and, you know, there are, are those patients that if one of them turns out not to be skin cancer, you know, you'll find another one on them that is probably skin <laughs> cancer that could use treatment. Unfortunately, I've actually had some patients that obviously are worried about coming to a doctor's office and look for options. So um, one of the options we use for skin cancer treatment is topical therapy. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, topical therapy is a great treatment for your superficial skin cancers. The ones that are kind of in the, the top layer of the skin, there's the epidermis, which is that lining, lining you see every day on the outside of your skin. And below that is dermis. Below that is subcutis, which is usually fat. Um, if it's only invading that epidermis, it's very easy to treat topically for several you know, months usually, and it can get inflamed and painful. So for a lot of people, they don't want to deal with it and deal with that long process, but it does spare visits. And, and for certain cancers, it's a great treatment. And for those people that are just waiting and biding their time until they come in for surgery, that may actually be the way to treat them. Mm -hmm. so Absolutely. They might as well be at home, be red and crusty and they're lesioned and hopefully it'll take it away. It's a good time to be home. It's a good time to be home. Now, which lesions or which dermatologic diseases can you actually treat entirely through telehealth without patients coming in? Well, there are actually many that we can do that with. And, and you know, kind of common, the common ones are pretty much acne, psoriasis. Those are your two big ones. Acne is very common and it's very easily treated over teloderm. Usually, unless we're doing the big gun medications like Accutane or Isotretinoin, uh, you don't need lab work. So it, it also spares a visit to the lab. Uh, for, the psori for psoriasis, it's similar unless you're using the injectable medications. You usually don't need to do blood work as well. So there's not even that visit to the lab. And all of that can be done via telehealth. That is exciting. Now, which lesions can you actually, skin lesions, can you clearly identify through telehealth? Say, say you have a good video connection with a patient. If there's good quality video, uh, you can diagnose many benign lesions. So it's a great way to spare a visit to the office for something you're concerned about. If you're concerned, do a telehealth. It takes 20 minutes of your time. And, you know, I can take a look at it and tell you that's a seborrheic keratosis, which is a benign uh, tumor that many people get from the sun and from genetics, um, as well as others. 
It's been an exciting six weeks for us, for sure. And my prediction is that definitely telehealth is here to stay. Absolutely. Um, I've actually enjoyed it. it. It creates more efficiency for patients. And the patients I've seen, uh, they have been either at work, uh, pulled over while driving somewhere, mm-hmm. in bed, <laughs> in their living rooms. It's actually been fun to see that patients' lives are almost uninterrupted as right. they go on with their doctor's visits and not wait in the waiting room. I, I prefer not to see them in the bathroom, but anywhere else. <laughs> yes, I haven't seen that yet. Now, a lot of things have also changed for us from procedural perspective, the way we do surgeries and procedures on patients. Of course, we know that coronavirus spreads through contact, through mucus that gets deposited on objects, and then we touch the objects and touch our faces. In our center, we've been able to successfully manage that risk by First of all, everyone washing their hands, everyone that comes in disinfecting their hands, and of course our staff are diligently wiping and cleaning and spraying and disinfecting. Constantly. Yeah, Constantly. absolutely. Yeah. But the so that type of transmission, I think we've been able to successfully control in our center. But the one thing that really scares all of us are these asymptomatic spreaders. Absolutely. And and you know, the asymptomatic spreaders are, are perfectly healthy. They have no symptoms. They can walk in and, and infect everyone around them. And of course, their method of transmission is uh, micro aerosolization. We've seen these videos on the news uh, where when people are talking, there's these micro droplets emanating from their mouths for, you know, six, six feet or longer, obviously. So, which brings us to the point, neither you or I are wearing a mask. Are we not practicing safe distancing? Well, I, I don't have a ruler, but I know that we are at least 10 feet apart at this point. And for sure, 10 feet. I think we're about 15 to 20 feet 15 apart. To 20 feet. Yeah. The camera can't see us. So, and the other thing that we have in this room is we have really robust ventilation. So there's great airflow. And so that's really the only safe way to do it. No one else is in this large, it's our large conference room where we have our monthly skin, or we used to have our monthly skin cancer conference. We're restarting it. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, we're going to do it digitally. It's going to be an exciting new time Mm -hmm. for our physicians who follow us and come to our conferences. But so we are practicing right now safe distancing. So back to the subject of micro aerosolization. So there's several ways we've obviously been able to protect ourselves and our staff, and that is masks. That's a basic thing. But something else happens in surgery, doesn't it? So during surgery, uh, we often use cautery or hyfurcation, which is a brand name, but it's electric uh, stopping of bleeding or electric control of, of bleeding. And what that does is create a plume of smoke. And in this plume of smoke, it has been proven that certain viruses can live, specifically HPV, among others. Now, this testing That's is human not- papillomavirus. Correct. The virus of warts. The warts, and, as well as cervical cancer and other types of, of, of mucosal cancers. So as far as coronavirus goes, this is not, is not known yet. But we have to assume at this point that it could be in that smoke plume. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, also in surgery, when we use suction in dermatologic procedures, suction is generally not done. But in the operating rooms, we do bigger, more uh, bloody procedures. And so we use suction and that can also create some micro aerosolization. Well, here at SCAR Center, we've implemented source control, which is the goal, because 
where, the, where that sm smoke plume is coming from is right at the source of the cautery. And so if you put a suction right next to it, you can collect hopefully the majority of that smoke plume. Uh, here we've actually implemented using two suctions at the same time at all times. The the two suctions, it's interesting. We've been exploring the whole suction thing. It's it's a whole new science. We haven't really used it before like that. I mean, yes, I know in dermatology, whenever you have uh, done any sort of destruction of warts, uh, of course, that's always been considered a high-risk procedure for dermatologists. In fact, there have been some known infections and even uh, oral cancers, oropharyngeal cancers, that dermatologists have acquired. Absolutely. Presumably from, from the aerosolization of HPV. Mm -hmm. So we certainly don't want to get coronavirus. Um, and so the we've been exploring with all sorts of technology. In the surgery center, we have the benefit of having something called wall suction, central suction. It's a very powerful suction, and we're able to... Uh, effectively evacuate all the uh, microaerosolization at the source, at the patient. The second level of control, of course, what we have are the N95 masks. So the most of us don't need N95 masks when we're out and about and seeing other people, unless they're actively infected. But when we're operating, the amount of microaerosolized fluids may be substantially higher. We don't really know but definitely is higher. And so we need to protect ourselves and our staff. So we use N95 masks, which are very occlusive masks and can effectively filter out viral particles. And, and the mouth is not, mouth and nose is not the only place you can acquire the virus. You can also acquire the virus through your eyes. So that is something else you have to be concerned about. In fact, I know, uh, Dr. Modorsky, you, you at one, you heard about a, an OR case Oh, it's, it's, it was terrible. It's in the early days of coronavirus, and this is an asymptomatic uh, spreader most likely, and they're doing a transnasal surgery or some sort of sinus surgery. And everybody in the OR were wearing N95 masks because they knew there was some coronavirus, but everyone got coronavirus. And so the conclusion is the microaerosolization in the operating room infected healthcare providers through their eyes. So now we're using goggles. Yeah. And we've had to try, uh, what would you say, 25, 30 different <laughs> goggles to get this uh, Amazon get right. is probably wondering what kind of business I'm running. We've, we've purchased multiple different goggles from um, airsoft goggles mm -hmm. to special ski goggles with fans. Racquetball goggles. Racket, yeah, that was one of the favorites, actually, of our doctors. <laughs> <laughs> so, But the idea is to wear goggles, for some of us, over our glasses that are fully enclosed to protect us from microaerosolization and also don't fog us up with fans and such. That's been a challenge. Yeah. So additionally in our office, we have implemented testing for everyone. Every person that enters our facility is they're getting questioned about any symptoms related to the coronavirus as well as getting their temperature taken, which I know has become standard practice many places now. And that's kind of the first line of defense. Additionally, when one, once a person enters the building, they're required to sanitize their hands as well as put on a mask. So everyone is wearing a mask. And for our surgical patients, we've taken one further step. So these are patients we consider high-risk patients. In other words, we're going to be doing cautery, which creates microaerosolization and maybe suction. And those two acts uh, w will not be protected by a patient's mask, obviously. Mm -hmm. So for those patients, even though we use all the suction devices you've discussed before, the double suction to evacuate all that smoke and plume, we're also asking these patients to be tested for coronavirus. 
So right now, the testing for coronavirus, it's not a blood test. This is a swab test. It's a DNA test called RT-PCR. And right now, it takes a lab about 24 hours to process it. The challenge for us has been finding a lab that will do it on asymptomatic patients. Right now, the tests have been only available for symptomatic patients to see if they have coronavirus, but not for asymptomatic patients. So as of last week, we've been fortunate enough to find a lab in Dallas, Texas, where we ship the swab that we obtained from our patients overnight, and they provide us a result within 24 to 48 hours. So if we test a patient on a Monday, we can potentially do the surgery on them on a Thursday, having obtained the result on Wednesday. So this is another step we do to make sure we're not operating on asymptomatic carriers. Absolutely. And, you know, for, you know, this isn't the ideal time for anyone to be having surgery, but there are certain tumors and cancers that, that need to be treated more urgently. And they're not really things that can be put off. Yes. So this is a great tool for us. The, of course, because of that delay of the three to four days between the testing and the surgery, we asked the patients also to sign an isolation contract, just promising us and writing that they're going to isolate themselves at home without contact with any wild teenagers running around and potentially not social distancing. So that's our way to try to protect our staff and our other patients from contamination from asymptomatic spreaders. Absolutely. And we've implemented as well an isolation of patients. They enter the facility into a room and they spend the rest of their time in the facility in that room. So that we create less contact with fewer healthcare workers. So there's, I think we call it a care team, right? Mm -hmm. Designated to that patient in that room. And they're the only ones allowed to go in and see that patient and treat that patient. So we've been doing a full court press trying to protect our staff, our other patients, and ourselves. No one so far has gotten coronavirus, but we never know. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Jewell, are there some cases that you still cannot do because of coronavirus precautions? Yes, unfortunately, our cosmetic procedures have been put on hold. Any kind of any elective procedure really is on hold, and that's primarily cosmetic procedures that we do here at SCAR Center. Yes, and of course, we're waiting to restart those when the phase one to recovery guidelines can be instituted. And the guidelines, the federal guidelines so far from our uh, healthcare leaders have been a decrease in new cases for a period of two weeks before phase one could be initiated. And some of the elective procedures can be done. The exciting thing is I've just I've been checking Orange County cases and there seems to be a trend of decreasing new cases. Right. For, for more than a week now, I believe. Yeah. from It was kind of touch and go. I wasn't sure if we're there, but I think we're finally getting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not just flattening the curve. We're decreasing the number of cases, which means that within the next one to two weeks, we may start doing elective procedures. Of course, things are changing rapidly, and so we are still figuring it out as we go along, but we're excited to see um, most of our patients soon in the next next two weeks as phase one of recovery starts. So all of you stay safe. Dr. Jewell, thank you so much for joining. On this Thanks for f- having me. It was great to be here. It was a fun conversation, and we'll have more to come. Take care.